Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Waterfront Church. Uh, listen, I have a little uh, little story to tell you, a little disclaimer, a little behind-the-curtain stuff. Uh, I feel like we've been doing this long enough. you got to hear some of those stories. So one of those behind-the-curtain stories is this. So I have written in my notes at the top of every one of our studies that we do, every sermon that I preach for you guys online, hello, everyone, with an exclamation point, and here's why. So I usually say good morning, but I've wanted it to be honest, and of course we're recording on Friday nights, and so I thought hello everyone would be kind of a more honest answer. The problem, the reason I have it written down, is because hello everyone was the way I greeted every table when I worked at Red Lobster for four and a half years in Stillwater, Oklahoma and Lubbock, Texas, and so I'm being dead serious. Every time I get up here, I'm like, say Waterfront Church, not Red Lobster. Say Waterfront Church, not Red Lobster. So I just wanted you to get to see that. Now, if you zoom in, like in the weeks prior to this one, you can zoom in and see in my eyes. Don't get it wrong. Don't say it wrong. It's the same way, actually, uh, whenever you do a wedding, too, and you're trying to do a wedding, you want to make sure you say the person's name right. That it's. Uh, I went to a wedding once. Um, my poor cousin, uh, his wife's name is Shana, and the pastor that did the wedding called her every name except Shana throughout the wedding, and it was just uh, it was just so funny. So, uh, cousin Matt, there was your shout out today. So, anyway, just wanted you to get that. So, hello everyone. Welcome to Waterfront Church. Glad you guys are uh, a part of the service today, and uh, we're grateful to get to be here with you. Uh, if you got your Bibles, open to Hebrews chapter ten, and then Genesis chapter thirty-seven, and then we'll jump back to Genesis forty-four. So again, Hebrews ten, Genesis thirty-seven, and Genesis forty-four as we continue our study of the life of Joseph. Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever watched something change over time? You ever watched something change over time? Um, it's a beautiful thing. In the hand of Almighty God, he loves to take things in one form and turn them and craft them uh, into something completely different. I've always found it amazing uh, that Jesus was a carpenter, son of a carpenter by trade. Uh, and again, the creator of the universe, uh, the son of God, uh, would uh, even, in his, uh, even in his life here on earth uh, be an apprentice to a, uh, to a carpenter. I've always thought that was extra special. God likes to see things craft and take shape uh, over time. And honestly, I fall into the same category. I'd also I like when we have movies that do this exact same thing. And one of those is one of my all-time favorites, Remember the Titans. You ever see Remember the Titans? One of my favorite movies of all time, uh, just Disney at its finest, right? And uh, the story, so extra special because it's T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, just south of here, uh, not too far. And so uh, anyway... One of my favorite scenes in the movie, there's all this tension that's taking place between, uh, uh, between the guys that are on the football team together because they've taken two schools, fused them together, different races, and trying to uh, merge everything together so that uh, some bigger things can happen in the city, uh, belong just playing football, but they're watching it play out with these students, with these kids on the football field. And so they go off to camp. I love it because you get to see just how raw the emotions are. They're trying to fuse together as a team, and uh, sure enough, the coach fused them together as a team the same way coaches have fused teams together over the years by running them into the ground. They just ran over and over again until they were completely and totally physically exhausted. And do you remember the scene? They're 
having practice late at night and they've got the lights shining and the coach just keeps saying, run it again, run it again. And you watch them get so frustrated, but then all of a sudden, the two alphas on the team that are kind of competing for dominance, you watch the two of them all of a sudden start to work together and it causes this cohesion where you've got one defensive end on one side, one defensive end on the other, and all of a sudden, each representing a different school that's come together and you watch it, it starts to change. And I love the scene because it zooms in on Denzel Washington's face, the coach of the team, Coach Boone. They zoom in on Denzel's face and you watch it. A little smirk goes up on his lip as a sign that something has happened, that things are beginning to change. And you watch it. What starts off with the two defensive ends eventually spreads to the whole rest of the team. And then again, in the beautiful movie Magic, they end up winning the championship. Some of you are like, what? They win the championship? You had like 20 years to watch this movie, okay? It's a great movie, awesome. Maybe 20, maybe more than 20 years to watch the movie. You watch things change over time. The smirk comes on the coach's face when he realizes something's happened. This thing we've been waiting for, this thing we've been praying for is beginning to take shape. Our God enjoys crafting things over time. There's so many times that you'll hear people say, why are bad things happening to good people? Why is God allowing this difficulty to take place? I'm telling you, part of the answer, it's a very, very extensive question because there's a lot of different angles that you can go with this. One of them is that God has the patience to not just cast us aside when we do wrong, but he has the patience and the foresight to see the value in us, to redeem us, and then over time to shape us and chisel us into the likeness of his son. If you look with me, if you will, Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 23 through 25, I think, uh, speaks to this very powerfully. The writer in Hebrews says this, let us hold unswervingly, underline unswervingly, one of the only places in scripture that word is used. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, underline let us consider, how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I love verse 25. Let us not give up, look at this, on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Underline the day approaching. Now stop there for just a minute. That last verse, verse 25, is one of the verses that I've heard, I believe, wrongfully preached by some pastors saying that that's the reason that we should still be gathering together, uh, even against a, a state a state issuance um, during the coronavirus pandemic. That's not what this verse is saying. If you look at it in context, it's not saying you meet no matter what. It says don't give up the habit of meeting together. We've got to, we need each other. We need to stay connected. And then it says, hold unswervingly to that hope that we profess. The idea is over time, hold on to hope, continue to encourage one another and push one another to do right. And then it says in the end, and don't give up meeting together. Make sure you are still continuing to connect with other Christians in fellowship. In fact, I actually think this verse for our time period speaks to the WebEx small groups that we've been doing. It speaks to the phone calls that the deacons and to the emails that the deacons have been sending out connecting with you to the attempts that myself and the staff have been making to reach out to you the idea is in this verse we do not give up the habit of meeting together even though it looks a little bit different than it has in the past we believe that God is using this time to shape something very very special if you're taking notes write this down with God there are no wasted days or movements let me say that again. With God, there are no wasted days 
or movements. It's powerful to remember that when it comes to Almighty God, he watches and shapes things over time. He is patient, not just with the universe, but he is patient with you and me because he desires to see his will come about and for us to be who he made us to be. Sometimes we can go through stretches where it's tough to see exactly what it is that God is doing. It's tough to understand or have the foresight for exactly what it is that God's doing. I had the privilege of getting to write a book not too long ago called New Creation. In fact, some of you, we mailed it to you. Uh, It's the story of how Waterfront Church got started, and a lot of it has to do uh, with the death of my father, the the starting of our church and the death of my mentor, my best friend, my father, um, best friend next to my wife. Um, My father, we... uh, um, it was just a very difficult thing to put together. In fact, I never thought I'd be the person that wrote a book like that that was a story that everybody could read. And anybody who's written a book knows this. Not everything you write goes into the book. In fact, if you've written a book before or you've even attempted it, you'll start on the path and start on what it is that you're trying to put together. And then all of a sudden, in my case, the Lord took it in a totally different direction. And there were two or three chapters that I had written as teaching chapters. And I just had to throw them out. And it was brutal looking at it going, Lord, what are you doing? I put the time and the effort into this. Then I had to throw it away. Some of you have had that experience with a paper that you've written for a class or a bill that you've written that you're trying to get past. It's interesting. Over time, the Lord shapes it, but there are no wasted movements when it comes to our God. Even the process of writing those chapters for the book that didn't make it in were part of the Lord chiseling into me, fixing my story so that I could tell it in a way that it was easier to understand. There is no wasted day. There are no wasted movements when it comes to our God. So it begs our big million dollar question today. What can God do with us over time? What can God do with us over time? Hopefully for some of you today, this will be an encouragement because you will hear the passage of scripture that we go through and you will think to yourself, I am usually the person that says, go, 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 get it done now, now, now. I wish it was here yesterday. If that's you, this is the lesson for you. Some of the greatest things, some of the greatest stories, some of the most amazing testimonies that God has crafted over the years happen over time and not in an instant or a lightning bolt. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to look at the story of Joseph, but we're going to look at it today through the eyes of a man named Judah. Judah is Joseph's brother, okay? But Judah, one of the brothers that sell him into slavery. But what we're about to read in this passage is Judah is named specifically as the one who came up with the idea to sell Joseph. Look at what it says in Genesis 37, verses 23 through 28. It says, so when Joseph came back to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the richly ornamented robe that he was wearing. This is the one that his father gave him that was both symbolic and and a literal picture that he was the favorite of the father. And it says, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. They threw him into a well. Now the well was empty and there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat their meal. And they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Now look at this. Judah said to his brothers, circle, highlight, and underline, Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? 
Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And the other brothers agreed. So when the Midianites, Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and they sold him, look at this, for 20 shekels of silver for food money to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now stop there for just a minute. Up until this point, they're talking about killing Joseph, but a lot of it is just bullying. They've put him in a well, a dry well. They're talking about taking his life. And then all of a sudden, Judah steps up and goes, eh, we shouldn't take his life. Let's sell him. We don't gain anything by killing him. Let's just sell him. And then after that, they tell the father, they dip the, they dip the jacket, the coat that he's been given in blood, and they go and they tell the father Jacob to basically read between the lines uh, that Joseph's been killed by some wild animal. Now, here's what's interesting. The brothers do this together. But Judah... Judah had been the mouthpiece. As I was writing this message, there were several moments that came to mind when I have not just gone along with the crowd on a bad decision, but I have been the mouthpiece for a bad decision. There were also some moments that came to mind when a group or when a gathering of people have made me feel unwelcomed or unwanted, But there was one voice or two voices in particular that were loud that spoke on behalf of the group or that went out of their way to make me feel unwelcome. Whichever group you fall into, the hater or the hated, this lesson is for you. Did you know that God can still craft something good in your life? And over time, he can heal some of the most incredible wounds, both that you have caused and uh, that you have in your own spirit. If you're taking notes, now flip over to Genesis 44, verses 18 through 20. Genesis 44, just a couple of pages over, and we'll jump back into our story. Genesis 44, verses 18 through 20. So the brothers sell Joseph into slavery as a group, but Judah's the one who suggests it, and again, he even suggests that they profit off of it. Now, in Genesis 44, the story we've been going over the last couple of weeks is Joseph has experienced forgiveness from Almighty God. He is reconciled to his brothers. They're peaceable, and he's been feeding them, taking care of them and their father, even though the brothers don't know who Joseph is at this point, but Joseph is wanting to move to a point of partnership with them where they can not only be together, but they can truly share everything. It can be a full and open relationship that they have with one another, have the keys to each other's house, so to speak. And then all of a sudden, Joseph comes up with a test to find out if his brothers are honest men. He takes a silver cup, a very special silver cup, and he places it into Benjamin's sack, his, his full blood brother's sack, and then the rest of the brothers are there. But if Benjamin has to stay, then Jacob is going to die because Jacob's life is so connected to Benjamin's. So Judah has stepped up beforehand leading into this story and told Jacob, if you let me take Benjamin, I'll do anything as far as my life is concerned to make sure I get to bring him back to you. He's changed. He's a different person. But he's about to illustrate that, just how changed he is to Joseph. If you're taking notes, Again, our big million dollar question, what can God do with us over time? The first part of this goes in Judah's talk. Look at what he says in verses 18 through 20. It says, then Judah went up to Joseph 
Remember, Judah doesn't know that Joseph is his brother. He just thinks he's a big political official. It says, Then Judah went up to Joseph and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant. Underline your servant. He says that twice there. And though you are equal to Pharaoh himself, he says, my Lord, my Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead and he is the only one of his mother's sons left and his father loves him. Underline, and his father loves him. Now remember this, Judah is not the full blood brother to Joseph. He's the half-brother. Jacob is the father, but Joseph and Judah have different mothers. To make matters worse, Judah's mother was not loved as much as Joseph's mother. Joseph's mother, Rachel, was the, was the beloved wife of Jacob. And so what we have in this circumstance that's so interesting, Judah, who leads the charge of hatred in Genesis 37, is now standing up on behalf of Benjamin, the family that he had felt rivaled to. He stands up, walks over to Joseph and says, I know that you are in charge. You are second only to Pharaoh. And he says, I am your servant. Look at the humility in that statement. I am your servant. You are equal to Pharaoh himself. And then he comes back and says, this boy Boy Benjamin, I put him and his needs before myself. And why do I do it? He says, because my father loves him. This is the same Judah who back in chapter 37 had been so angry that Joseph was the favorite that he has just basically done this murder of his character. He's told the father that he's dead, even though they sold him into slavery. Judah's different than he was before. If you're taking notes, what can God do with us over time? Number one, he can cultivate humility in the prideful. Our God can cultivate humility in the prideful. If you are watching this today and you are an individual that honestly, you hurt so badly because of something that's happened to you in the past because you've been so filled with pride It's come to take you over. You realize that God can change you. You may sit there and watch this and go, man, I've gone too far. I've done horrible, horrible things. I've been about myself since day one. I got good news for you today. God is in the business of changing things over time. If you'll say yes to him today, he can chisel out that pride and cultivate into you precious, precious humility. On the opposite side, Maybe you're the one that would say, I've been hurt so badly by someone, and it seems like they might be different. Remember our lesson from last week. It doesn't mean that you just open the doors to them without them being tested, but I believe through this series that there are some of you that God may actually be calling to forgive, to reconcile with, and then maybe, just maybe, to connect back in true fellowship and partnership with someone who has deeply hurt you in the past. God can cultivate humility in the prideful. 
Just for the record, there are a thousand stories in scripture that have to do with this particular story. In fact, it really is the running theme that man feels like we're in charge of our own destiny and God has to remind us over and over again that he is God and that we are not. If you're taking notes, write this down. God loves you too much to let you go on believing you are the center of your universe. Let me say that again. God loves you too much to let you go on believing that you are the center of your universe. One of the best stories that's a picture of that is the story of Moses. Moses, again, born in miraculous fashion when a decree has been made that all Hebrew males are to be killed, are to be thrown into the Nile River. He survives, and not only survives, but Moses is brought up in the house of Pharaoh. He is a prince of Egypt. The Lord literally pulls him out of the river and places him in Pharaoh's house. He grows up in the lap of luxury. But then, in his pridefulness, Moses commits murder, runs away, ends up a shepherd living in the Badlands. And then there, that is where the Lord gets a hold of his heart. He gets to meet with Almighty God through a burning bush. It burns but is not consumed symbolic of God's power and dominion even over the laws of physics. In that moment, God calls out to his heart and this man who was prideful, who grew up in Pharaoh's house, this man who was so prideful that he commits murder, takes another person's life, he then is the one who is able to walk to Pharaoh in humility and then lead the people to freedom. I love the story. The Lord takes someone trapped in pridefulness and he turns them and cultivates them into someone who is deeply humble. If you're watching this today and you'd say, Zach, how does that happen? How does it start? How do you go from someone struggling with pride and we are in a city that celebrates pridefulness. How do you go from someone struggling with pride to someone who truly is a child of repentance? There's a beautiful passage of scripture that illustrates the process. Save your spot in Genesis and flip over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. This is a verse that I read before, but I really, really connected with this week. Jeremiah 31, verse 19. Here's what it says. Jeremiah writes this. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. Underline, after I strayed, I repented. And after I came to understand, he says, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Stop right there for just a minute. We get a picture of what happens in us with conviction when it's a time of true repentance. He says, I strayed. I acknowledge that I have done wrong. And then I repented. Repent doesn't just mean to be sorry. Repent means that you make a full 180. 80 degree turn from the direction you were previously moving in. He says, when I strayed, when I committed, or when I, I acknowledged the sin that I'd fallen into, Jeremiah comes back and says, I, I repented. I turned away from those wicked ways and moved in the opposite direction. Then I love the next part. After I came to understand, he says, I beat my breast and I was humiliated for the things that I had done in the time of my youth. Now, just for the record, this is the first part of how our pride is killed. You have to come to the point where you realize you screwed up, that you've done things that are less than perfect. Acknowledge those things before Almighty God, and it's not enough just to acknowledge them. We have to turn from our wicked ways, a full 180-degree turn, and then there is a moment of conviction 
where we come to an understanding that we had not just sinned against our brothers, but we had sinned against God. Pridefulness is realizing that your actions, when sinful, have complications that affect more than just you. It's something that we do against Almighty God. Now, the second part's the one that's the most important. Jeremiah lays out how we turn in repentance, but the way we find true forgiveness is through the acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is our one and only way to be saved, that through him, our sins can be gloriously forgiven. But we've got to come to the point where we kneel in humility before him, lay our pride at his feet, and trust him as the one and only way to be saved. That happens for every believer at least once when you give your life to Jesus Christ. I can tell you for me personally, there have been numerous occasions where the Lord has made the decision to chip away at my pride day after day. One of them came at a really big point in my life and it was right after graduation. I just graduated from Oklahoma State University, and I can remember praying to the Lord, Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do except move back to my hometown of Lubbock, Texas. Some of you know that uh, going back to your hometown without a job, at the time I was waiting tables with a degree, and uh, going back to my hometown did not seem like the most attractive idea. However, if you tell God there's a place you don't want to go or a place you refuse to go, it's been my uh, estimation, it's been my history to find out that that was typically the place that the Spirit was calling me to go in the first place. So I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't know how I was going to get a job. I just knew that the Lord had told me to move back to Lubbock, and I had a transfer available with Red Lobster to wait tables at Red Lobster in Lubbock. I'll never forget... My grandmother and grandfather lived in Lubbock. And my grandfather was very, very sick and was going to be in the hospital for at least a month. I called my grandparents. It's right after my graduation. I said, I think the Lord's called me to move to Lubbock. I said, would it be okay if I lived with you guys for a while? My grandmother said, yeah. She goes, you can sleep on our couch. She said, we got a whole month that we're going to be living up at the hospital, University Medical Center. She said, we'd love for you to have our spot at the house. That was one of the most humbling times. There's some of you watching this, some of you in this room who've lived on a person's couch before. It was humbling. Not having a place to call my own. And not only that, knowing that at any point my grandmother could say it's time to move along. It was extremely humbling. Where I'd gone from having my own apartment, controlling my own destiny in Stillwater, all of a sudden I was dependent on someone else. Not long after that, my granddad got better, and my grandmother kind of gave me a nudge and was like, uh, when are you going to find your own place? Some of you heard me tell this story before. It was very influential for me. I remember praying that God would provide a place for me to live. I was paying my student loans back, and because of that, there wasn't a whole lot of extra money for me. I'm living in Lubbock waiting tables with a degree, and then working every chance I can at the church. I used to set up the chairs for one of the college Bible studies. They didn't pay me to do that, but uh, it was a big college Bible study paradigm that my dad preached, and we would set out 300 extra chairs, and then after it was over, we would tear down the 300 chairs. So it took extra time to set out that many chairs, get everything set, but I wasn't making any money. I just was glad to be around and glad to disciple. I'll never forget, I have no place to live, 
My grandmother's couch is about to be out of order for me. And then all of a sudden, I get a phone call from the man who was working as the college minister. And he said, we've had a student who flunked out. His father's a lawyer in the Houston area. And he said, uh, do you have a place to live? I said, what do you mean? He said, the man called and asked us if anyone in the, student, or if anyone in the college student ministry needed a place to live because his son still had nine months left on his lease. And he said, uh, if you'd like, we'd like to give it to you. I said, what? I said, how much? He goes, no, you don't understand. He said, for free. He said he just wanted to make sure this was somebody who was really plugged into the ministry. I began to weep because I was setting up the chairs. But setting up the chairs was fulfilling the criteria of someone who was plugged into the ministry so that they could receive the housing. I lived in that little apartment, Raiders Pass Apartment, off of University, excuse me, off of 4th Street in Lubbock. I lived there rent-free for nine months. I still can't believe it sometimes. Every day I walked through the door was humbling because I had done nothing to earn it. The grace of God was evident every time I walked through the door of that apartment. And I felt like he had given it to me because he had. God can cultivate humility in the prideful. I'm living proof of it. And he could do the same for you. It begs the question, is it time you were humble? Is it time that you were humble? Now flip back over to Genesis 44 and let's look at verses 21 through 32. So again, he says, you got to do this. He goes, he goes, you got to let him go. I'm your servant. You're equal to nobody, but you're equal to Pharaoh. He looks at him and says, look, I, I realize that I'm not my father's favorite son. Judah says, I realize that he loved this other woman more than he loved my mother. He said, but my father loves him and I made a promise. Now look at verse 21 through 32. Here's what it says. It says, then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, he will die. If he leaves the father, he will die. But you told your servants, unless the youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother comes with us, will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. Stop there for just a minute. Remember, he's talking about Joseph, but, jo but he doesn't know that Joseph is the one he's talking to. Here's Joseph hearing all this information, hearing that Judah is bringing him up in a positive fashion and the love that the father has for him even though he had not stirred it up look at what verse 30 says so now if the boy is not with us when i go back to your servant my father and if my father whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life underlying that my father's life is closely bound up with the boy's life sees that the boy isn't there he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, for the rest of my life. Stop right there for just a minute. What I found so interesting about this passage 
is the accuracy of the truth that Judah is laying out here. He says word for word exactly what has taken place and he pitches it back to Joseph. The reason this is such a dichotomy is in Genesis 37, they craft this lie that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal when in fact he's been sold into slavery. What the Lord has done here in the life of Judah is through all these life events, he has chiseled away in him so that he is no longer a prideful man, but one filled with humility. And now a man who was once a liar, he has turned into a champion of truth. If you're taking notes, write that down. What can God do with us over time? Number one, he can cultivate humility in the prideful. And number two, he can turn a liar into a champion of the truth. There are some of you watching this that honestly, when you think back on your life, there are parts of your testimony, there are parts of your life and your existence that are built on a lie. And you sit there and you go, "Ah, it's just been so long. It was just a small thing, but it's turned into a big thing. You can be set free in the power of the truth. You can be set free in the power of the truth. In the case of Judah here, Judah begins to tell Joseph the truth of their situation, the love of the father. He's telling basically that he is okay with the fact that the father loves this other family more than he's loved his family. And he comes back and says, his other brother Joseph is surely dead. He's gone. But your servant is guaranteed that he will bring Benjamin back alive. He says, I bear the shame if we don't do this, which is exactly what he had told the father. If you're taking notes, write this down. Those who try to control the narrative put their trust in themselves and not God. Those who try to control the narrative put their trust in themselves and not God. There are some of you who have become addicted to lying. And a lot of times, it's tough to lie big because there's too many things being recorded now, right? It's tough to lie big because you got social media and all these other things, but you can become addicted to the little lies, the little inaccuracies, the little things that pitch you in a better light than someone else. In this circumstance, Judah has been a liar But over time, the Lord has crafted him into a champion of truth. He's the one who pitches that Joseph be sold into slavery. He's a part of the group that comes up with the lie that leads Jacob to believe that Joseph was killed by an animal. For those of you who are a part of the story from earlier when we talk about Judah and Tamar, Judah's the one who basically twists the truth so that he doesn't have to fulfill his obligation as a father-in-law to care for Tamar. And instead, the Lord has to deal with him very severely. If any of you are in a situation where you're considering lying because it seems at the time like it's better for you, I want you to remember this. Telling a story, telling a lie is easy. Living with it is brutal. If you twist the truth and you have to continue twisting that truth, it eventually builds for you a prison that is almost certainly impossible to get out of on your own. Now, I've got good news for you. Our God specializes in the impossible. What's impossible with man is made possible with God. Jesus says a very powerful thing in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. 
Look with me if you will. And for any of you struggling with telling the truth, this is a great set of verses to memorize. Here's what it says. John chapter eight, verses 31 and 32. It says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, the truth are the keys to unlock that prison of lies. When the truth is out there, all of a sudden, the lies go away. The truth is meant to set you free, not to harm you or to hurt you. There's a great movie back in the day, my favorite of the Jim Carrey movies over the years, called Liar, Liar. Now, it's not completely and totally clean. Some of the language in it's pretty rough, but uh, I could pretty much vouch for that one. It's one of my favorite old movies, and uh, I just love it. Liar, Liar, in the movie, Jim Carrey, the main character, tells a whole bunch of lies. He works as a lawyer, tells a whole bunch of lies. He kind of falls into the lawyer stereotype. Not all lawyers are that way, all right, especially in our church. Not all lawyers are that way, uh, but the, uh, the movie plays into the lying lawyer stereotype. And what you find is he lies to better his situation. He lies to try to get a leg up. He lies to try to help himself and to help others. But the truth is, all he does is build an awful, awful prison for himself. So in the movie... He gets this curse where he can only tell the truth for 24 hours, no matter what happens. And what he begins to find over time is the truth often hurts, but the movie is a beautiful portrayal that in the end, it ends up setting him free, and it ends up setting his family free from the prison he's created for them at the same time. I wrote this, and I thought of Pinocchio. We get to watch a lot of Disney movies at our house. And do you remember the scene, the famous scene in Pinocchio? When he's in the cage, he can't get away, and then all of a sudden, the magic fairy shows up. And when the magic fairy shows up, he's trapped in this prison. And she basically says, what happened to you? How'd you get in this prison? And for no reason, he spins it. He begins to say, oh, these terrible things that happened. Giants were in the land, or whatever it is he says. And then you watch it, the nose starts to grow. Man, the fairy plays into it. She goes, oh, really? That's what happened? Yeah. And all of a sudden, his nose begins to grow even more. She's the one who can set him free from the cage. She's the one who can pull him out. Why in the world is he lying to her? You know what the answer to that question is? We don't know. We don't know. Why do we choose the lie over the truth? Because for some reason in our mind, we think that we can control the narrative. Think of Pinocchio. He's controlling the narrative, but he can't get himself out of the cage. He's trapped and he needs someone to help him. The same is true for anyone caught in a lie. It's actually been my estimation that this is the quickest jump that you can make when it comes to sin and repentance. The lie becomes so intricate, but when you finally embrace the truth, that prison cell is shattered and you can't go back into it. This is actually one of those beautiful things in repentance where when you move in the opposite direction, it's done very, very quickly. There's humiliation, just like the Jeremiah passage had talked about. There's humiliation, there's that feeling of that you've wasted days of your youth, but you can honestly move on to something else. Sometimes they're lies we tell to others, and then sometimes they're lies we tell to ourselves. It begs the question, 
Are you looking for freedom in a prison of lies? Are you looking for freedom in a prison of lies? You cannot control the narrative. The truth is the truth. And the quicker you embrace it, the quicker you'll get free. Now flip back over to Genesis 44, and we'll read verses 33 and 34 to finish out chapter 44. Look at what it says next. Again, he's told the story, and now we get to see the full transformation of Judah here in Genesis 44, verses 33 and 34. It says, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave. Underline, as my Lord's slave. In place of the boy, underline in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Now stop here for just a minute. What had Judah done to Joseph back in Genesis 37? He sold him into slavery. And now it's come full circle to the point that Judah could let Benjamin go off into slavery just like Joseph. But he can't do it. He can't do it. He's a different man than he was before. And he rises up and says, I won't let what happened to Joseph happen to Benjamin. I won't make the same mistake that I made in my youth. I won't make it now as a grown man who has seen the world, who has seen the power of Almighty God, who has seen what he can do with a busted and broken life, how he can craft it and redeem it into something that is beautiful. He stands up and says, I won't make that mistake again. If you're taking notes, What can God do with us over time? Number one, he can cultivate humility in the prideful. Number two, he can turn a liar into a champion of the truth. And number three, he can teach the unloving to love unconditionally. He can teach the unloving to love unconditionally. There are some of you looking at this and going, could God really use me? Could God really change me? You don't know what I've done. You don't know the horrible things that I've done in my lifetime. Remember the story of Judah. He, he, he both pitched and sold to these brothers that they sell Joseph into slavery just because they didn't like him. And here he is, a different man. God can change you. You say, How? First, through relationship with Jesus Christ. And then second, through walking with him day by day, sacrificing your life to him every single day and taking up your cross. It's the reason Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he says he would lose his life for my sake, would find it. You gotta come to a point when you truly die to self. And when we do that, we begin to understand what unconditional love really is. Unconditional love is based on self-sacrifice, that you would put someone else's needs, someone else's desires, and the will of Almighty God before your own. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, our last quote today. Unconditional love means you are always willing to take the hit so someone else doesn't have to. Say it again. Unconditional love means you are always willing to take the hit so someone else doesn't have to. I don't know that there's a better example of this as far as someone turning and changing over time than the Apostle Paul. Paul goes through all three of these phases that we talked about. This morning, Paul starts off as an enemy 
It's by his own words. Paul says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, smartest of the smart. He graduated from the Pharisee school. He was a teacher of the law and zealous to act it out as well, zealous in legalism. So much so that when Stephen, the first martyr, first Christian martyr, is killed, it says that Saul as a young man, Paul when he was a young man, was guarding the coats while Stephen took his last breath. You see, Paul wasn't just one who hurt people. He was also one who affirmed those who did the hurting. He then was the one who went from village to village trying to tear Christians out of their homes, men, women, and children, and he would take them to places where they would be killed. And then the Lord humbled him on the road to Damascus, a light shining like the sun called out to Paul, blinded him. And in that moment, Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, why do you persecute me? His name was Saul before it was Paul. Why do you persecute me? At that point, he doesn't know what to do. He's been moving in one direction, but Almighty God has had a collision with him and his life is different. The humility of Paul comes full surface when he is then walked into Damascus, blind and he can't see, and he's sitting in a disciple's home, waiting, sitting in a man's home, waiting for someone to give him instructions, waiting for God to show up and give him direction. In his life, I wondered if, if in my life, what was similar was those days sleeping on my grandparents' couch, knowing that I was exactly where God wanted to, me to be, but not understanding what was next. All of a sudden, a man named Ananias comes, speaks to him, puts his hands on Paul and says, Brother Paul, the Lord be with you. See, and it says something like scales fell from Paul's eyes. All of a sudden, he could not only see, but Ananias, the man, says to him, Paul, you must believe in Jesus. He is the one who sets you free. Paul gives his life to Christ that day, turns from his wickedness, repents. Humility is cultivated in his life. He goes from being the Pharisee of Pharisees, to a guy who makes tents for several years. He went from being a big shot with a high-level education to all of a sudden he was doing something that didn't require any education at all. Now, just for the record, I'm not belittling somebody who makes tents or works in construction. It's good work. But Paul had a degree. Paul had the schooling. He had the training to do something else. And yet, he did this for a time. Such humility was cultivated in him that then he became a champion of the truth. Studied scripture from a completely different perspective, began to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of all prophecy. And then the Lord used him to plant churches across the known world. In fact, he's the one who God used as the apostle to the Gentiles. The reason our church is in the club today is because Paul had the courage to stand up and take the gospel to the Gentiles. He had been one pushing the lies but he became a champion of the truth. And then, last but not least, Paul went from unloving, a violent man, a persecutor, to one who loved so unconditionally that in his last letter, even though he's been deserted by the other believers, Paul makes the statement, do not count it against them. When it came to my trial, Paul says, no one came to my defense. He says, but let it not be held against them. And then he asks for one of his rivals, a man named John Mark, who had deserted him. He said, please bring John Mark so I can have one more conversation with him. This man who had been unloving 
God had crafted as a hero of the faith who loves unconditionally. One final verse, and we'll call it a day today. Paul's story could be yours as well. Paul's story could be mine. In the hands of Almighty God, he can craft something over time that is truly for the ages. Look at John chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 12 and 13. Jesus' thoughts on this particular subject. And Jesus sets for us the gold standard of unconditional love. John 15, verses 12 and 13, it says this. Jesus said, my command is this. Love each other, but look at this. As I have loved you. The standard is not just love. Unconditional love is Christ-centered love. And then verse 13. And greater love has no one than this, than he who laid down his life for his friends. Sacrifice is the key to unconditional love. And God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus, not just to die for us and redeem us, but to set the example for how we should live and treat one another. It begs the final question today. Do you love as Christ loved? Do you love as Christ loved? God is so good to us. He is so patient and so kind. And in Judah, we watch him go from violent to someone who is offering sacrifice in true Christ-like fashion. Our God is so powerful over time, he can create that change. He could do the same for you today. Are you here and would say, Zach, I just feel like I've lived for myself, but it's time I give my life to Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time, but there is something powerful about considering the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and the scripture that we've read, and how we're different because of those things. With nobody looking around, every head bowed, every eye closed, I'd like to ask you to consider right now, are you here and would you say, Zach, would you pray for me? I'm pretty prideful, and I'm ready to become one who's humble. Now, just for the record, this is one that I've seen take a lot of time. Even the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest believers ever to live, powerful, awesome Christian, even he, it took a lot of time for this to happen. But you'd say, I'm ready to start the path. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that the Lord would destroy my pride and cultivate humility in my life. That word cultivate I use there because it is like planting a seed. Humility is something that develops and grows and bears fruit over time. But you got to have a time when you plant the seed. you got to have a time where you start the process. If you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that seeds of humility would be planted in my life today so that my pride would be destroyed. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you for your courage. I'm going to pray for you. But your simple prayer is this. God, plant the seeds of humility in my life today. Second, maybe there are some of you that would say, Zach, just like Pinocchio, I'm trapped in that prison of lies. I've told some different things that are not true, and honestly, I just feel trapped on every side. Remember, the truth 
shall set you free. It starts with you knowing it. And then once you receive it and turn from your wicked ways, that is a prison cell you can leave very, very quickly. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray I would leave behind lies and that I would become a champion of truth. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you for your courage. If that's you, there's some different things that can be done at this point, but it all starts the same way. I want to encourage you to push pause and then to tell the truth to the Lord. It starts with him. In fact, Jesus even says that you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. One of the problems with lies is we start to believe them ourselves once we say them long enough. I want to encourage you. Stop, pray, speak the truth to Almighty God, and then make the commitment that you are not going to tell a lie on that subject again. I'll pray for you, but that's between you and God today. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you that would say, Zach, I've done some pretty unloving things. And I want the Lord to teach me to love unconditionally. All of that starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are able to love one another as he loved us. We are able to follow his example. And we die to self daily because greater love has no one than he who lays down his life for his friends. If that's you and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that I would be loving. Pray that I would follow that Christ-like example. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. It'll change every relationship you have. Man, I'm telling you, people who are selfless, you want to be friends with that guy or that lady. And people who are selfless, those are the ones you want to trust. People who are selfless, that's who you want to work a shift with. That's who you want to work a job with. That's who you want to be your neighbor Selflessness could change the entire world around you. And most of all, it could change your eternity. I'm going to pray for you, but if that was you, I want to encourage you to call out to God and say, God, I die to myself today. Now remember, this isn't like becoming a suicide bomber. Jesus says to die to self daily. That's the word that lets us know this is figurative and not literal. You're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. I want to encourage you. You pray too. Lord, teach me to love as Christ loved me. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. And Lord, thank you for Judah. Thank you for not giving up on him. And Lord, I thank you. There's part of me that when we read this the first time, you want vengeance on Judah because he's the one who has stood against your anointed and Joseph. But God, you are so much smarter than we are. You're so much bigger than we are. Lord, your plan for Judah's life was also just as amazing as the one that you had for Joseph. They were both on a path of amazing redemption. They were both on a path of you murdering their pride and replacing it with humility. They were both on a path of truth being something that gave you glory. And Lord, they were both on a path of learning to love one another unconditionally. It's bizarre to me. They were different paths and yet walking the same road, Joseph and Judah. Thank you, God, for leading them. And Lord, I pray that in that same footprint that you would lead us today, 
For anyone who is here that desires humility, I pray that they would call out to you for it and you would give it. For anyone calling out to be free from that prison of lies, I pray that you would set them free in your powerful truth this morning. And Lord, for anyone desiring to love unconditionally, to be loved unconditionally, I pray that they would follow your example and that they would die to self daily. Thank you, God, for who you are. Speak in power in these final moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray.